Um, before I begin, I just want to thank each one of you who has been praying for me this past week because uh, I have not been well. I felt a, a flu coming on last weekend and have been popping a lot of pills ever since. But I just want to thank the Lord uh, for His strength and I want to thank you for your prayers. And even as I work through uh, my work responsibilities as well as uh, God's Word, both of them were a challenge. And I must confess that if I'm standing here preaching this to you, I, I question whether I should and whether I actually can and whether I ought to be preaching this because this is such a challenge in my own personal life, but I know that it is the Word of God. And it is on that basis uh, that I bring you this. I've been thinking for a while about um, how our Sunday morning service is like a meal. Uh, you know, our singing is an appetizer that whets our appetite for the Word of God, uh, which is the main course. And then we finish off with uh, fellowship, which is dessert, because that's really sweet. It might sound cheesy, but I find this picture really refreshing because it is, a, it is a wonderful picture of community and togetherness that we share as we come around God's word, God's truth, and just sharing in our lives, uh, sharing our lives with one another. So thank you, Jordan, for whetting our appetite for uh, the word. And let's pray that the Lord would use it to nourish us and to supply whatever needs that we might have. So we might just pray again. Gracious God and loving Father, we, we thank you for who you are. We praise your name for your goodness to us. And Lord, we come before you recognizing our complete weakness and dependence on you. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us our sins. Lord, that you would strengthen us and build us up physically and mentally and spiritually. Lord, that we would stand before you. Lord, as people who are redeemed, who have a knowledge of what you have done for us, and Lord, stand before you, giving you praise, because you are worthy of all honor and praise and glory that we can give to you. Speak to us through your word. Speak to us through your spirit. Lord, let us not be like the person who hears and then walks away, but we pray, Lord, that you would speak deep into our hearts to the issues that need addressing. Lord, not just so that our sins would be, we would be convicted of our sin, but Lord, that we would move, that we would obey, and that we would glorify you through our obedience. We ask this in Jesus' most holy and precious name. Amen. As part of our ongoing series into what Christians pursue, we have been investigating the pursuit of prayer for these past three times that I've been up here, and specifically, We've been studying the model of prayer given to us by our Lord himself in Matthew 6, 9-13, which we know as the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. Whilst we know this by heart, I'm sure, let us read together the text once again to familiarize ourselves with the various petitions that it has. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
As we have been seeing, this is not just a formula for a prayer. It is an outline. It is a model. It is not a chant. It is not a mantra that we rattle off to tick a few spiritual boxes. But rather, it is a series of petitions based on which we are meant to live. How is this? Well, we are not simply to pray with reverence, hallowed be thy name. We are to live with the sense of reverence for God's name, for his honor, for his glory, for who he is, for the character, for the entirety of his being. We are to model our lives to be consistent with the name of God. We do not just worship him with our mouths. We make sure that the meditations of our hearts come into line as well. Otherwise, there would be no point to this petition. Next, we are to pray to relinquish. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We learned here that the purpose of prayer is not to conform God to our wishes, but to conform ourselves to His. We do not spend time on our knees in prayer to impress Him with our desires, because He already knows what we need. Rather, we spend time in prayer so that we can be impressed by His will for us. And so prayer is to commence with a concern for the glory of God, for the honor of God, for His will to be done. And with those priorities in mind, we move to the petitions that we have for ourselves. We pray with reliance, with repentance. We pray for refuge and then finally we pray for God's reputation. Last time we saw that to pray with reliance means to live with complete dependence on God's provision. It's not simply that we need Him to supply the big things because we can take care of the little things. But we need Him to supply all things. There is nothing that we need or have that He cannot or has not supplied. There is a total dependence on Him. The scope of His provision is complete, total, comprehensive. He is our plan A, our plan B, all the way to plan Z. We are to rely on nothing and no one else but Him. And today we will see what it means to pray with repentance, and then, Lord willing, a couple of weeks' time, we will look at the last two petitions. Well, I hope you are following this model, because it covers everything, like I said, that we need to cover. We begin with a focus on God. We are moved to petition Him where His glory and His concern are the top of the list. As far as our concerns go, we are most concerned about Him. We have a deep concern that He should be glorified, that His name should be respected and revered, and we don't just have a concern, we live out that concern through our behavior. And then we move to ask for ourselves, and we ask for our physical needs. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for daily bread. We ask for our mental needs. We ask for forgiveness. And then we ask for our spiritual needs, which is guidance and direction. And so we're asking God to be glorified in His provision for the physical, for the spiritual, and for the mental. And so even though we are asking for ourselves, God continues to be at the center of our petitioning. What's more, He provides bread for the present, forgiveness for the past, direction for the future, and so we have all aspects of time covered in this prayer. It is marvelous. 
And therefore, I love going over it because it just shows us the completeness with which Jesus teaches us to pray. We don't just have to parrot out these words word for word, but we can contemplate on these thoughts and therefore pray with real meaning and urgency as to what our needs are and, and what God's wishes are and how we can bring ourselves into alignment with Him. So I do hope that you are employing this model in your prayer time. Today we will see what it means to pray with repentance and after we have investigated the text as thoroughly as we can, we will use our three questions to get further application for our lives. We will ask, what does it mean to pray with repentance? What does that look like in our lives? And how should it inform the content of our prayers so that we can actually come away from the text with some real applications, some real steps that we can employ uh, in a very practical sense. So we pray with repentance. What does that mean? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Having brought our minds into focus now, by focusing on God, by focusing on His will, His name, His glory, His desires... And having relinquished our will to His, having uh, com- uh, focused and, and recognized that we are utterly reliant on Him, we now come to praying with an attitude of repentance. And why do we do that? We realize that we have a debt. Forgive us our debts. We come to an understanding that we owe God. This is not a relationship of equals. We owe Him. We have an obligation to Him. He has something over us. In God's eyes, we are lawbreakers, we are serial offenders, we are guilty of what? Of non-compliance with His law. That's why if you've been paying attention to Jeff's series on the Ten Commandments, you would know by now what God desires for us in His law. Two commands that we break on a perpetual basis, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And if you've been paying attention to what Jeff has been saying, you shall have no other gods before me, it's very clear that God wants to have the supreme, preeminent part, role, in our lives. God has designed us to be worshippers and our role and our design as creatures is to worship Him. That is what we have been made for. If you are looking for purpose, if you are seeking meaning in life, become a worshipper of the true God because that is what you were created to do. And it is because we do not comply with this command that we are in breach of it. Giving God the preeminent place does not mean He is number one. It means He is number only. It doesn't mean that we, He is the first among many. It means He is the only. There is no one else. And that is the purpose that we are created for and we fail to live up to. And that is why we are debtors or sinners. 
That is why we owe God a moral obligation because of our sin. So what is this? Does this verse mean that God will only forgive us if we forgive others? I mean, look at the next part of the verse. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Is Jesus teaching us that our salvation, God's forgiveness in salvation, depends on whether we forgive others or not? And the answer is no. And I have two reasons to offer you. First, the object of the petition is our Father. The only people who can truly pray our Father are people who know Him as Father because He has adopted them as His children. The petition assumes that the petitioner is saved. You cannot know God as Father if you are not saved. I don't want me to be harsh or critical, but that's the truth. If you are not saved, the only way you know God is as judge. So therefore, this petition does not teach that we can earn our salvation by forgiving others. Second reason, salvation is not earned. We do not earn by forgiving. Salvation is not something that we earn. We all know that it is a gift of God. God grants us forgiveness that leads to salvation, not because we forgive others, but because Jesus died in our place. Our whole morning of singing and contemplation has been on the gospel. And I'm so glad for that because Jordan has refreshed us with the truths of the gospel. We have sung them. We have gloried in them. We have taken and made much of these truths. And so we need to recognize that forgiveness, our forgiveness of others does not earn us God's salvation. The price of being a debtor is death. We deserve to die. Not a nice thought. But I, I didn't make that up. As debtors, we deserve to die. It's not simply that we get thrown in prison or something like that. We deserve death. But Jesus has stood in our place, he has died himself in our place, thereby earning God's forgiveness on our behalf. The death of Jesus on Calvary's cross cancels our debt completely. Completely. So that nothing is owed to the Father. We are forgiven in a legal sense because we are talking about God as our judge. So when Jesus forgives us with his death on the cross, we have a judicial forgiveness, if you can call it that. God as judge forgives us the debt that we owe him. His wrath has been turned away, his justice has been satisfied, and now, instead of judge, he looks upon us as his children. Galatians 4, 6-7, Because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, 
than an heir through God. Romans 8, 15 and 16, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's the gospel. Again, man is a slave to sin. He does not merit God's forgiveness. But in grace and in love, God makes him an adopted child. We just sang that. I love the words, you know, guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Can that really be? Guilty, vile, and helpless sinners. And he is the spotless Lamb of God. And we can get full atonement? Because even though we did nothing? Hallelujah. What a Savior. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5. So clearly, this is not a, a petition um, for salvation because uh, the, the person making the petition has already been saved, which is why they address God as our Father. They have already received forgiveness in a judicial sense. So this is a petition made by believers. And if it is a petition made by believers, then what is, what is it about? And so we come now to the focus of what I believe Jesus is teaching, and I believe that he's teaching us at least three lessons, at least three lessons from this text. Number one, he's teaching us the reality of sin in the Christian life. Number two, he's teaching us the necessity of confession for Christian joy. And number three, he is teaching us the urgency of forgiveness for Christian fellowship. Number one, the reality of sin in Christian life. Forgive us our debts. Number two, the necessity of confession. Please forgive. The necessity of confession for Christian joy. Number three, the urgency of forgiveness for Christian fellowship as we have forgiven others. And so we come to the first point or the first lesson, the reality of sin in the Christian life. We don't like talking about this. When you look at evangelicalism around the world, there is very little talk of sin. And by the end of this sermon today, I hope that I will impress upon you why we need to talk about it. Because it has a direct impact on how we fellowship as believers. Forgive us our debts. By teaching us to pray this way, Jesus is drawing our attention to the fact that believers sin. People who are saved are redeemed. They still sin. We've been singing about how Christ has bought us and redeemed us and saved us. And we are going to be in heaven with Him. And we, He is glorified in our lives. But the fact is, we sin. 
I don't know about you, but it is true in my life. Just because you are saved from sin, doesn't mean you lose the ability to sin. 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Christian, make no mistake. You sin. But there's something else you need to bear in mind, and, I, and, I, and I'm going to stress it, and I'm going to belabor the point, because I believe we need to understand this, and we need to get a grip of it. Just because God has saved you, just because you have received salvation, does not in any way minimize the atrocity of your sin. Let me state that. A little differently. The sin of a redeemed individual is no less odious or offensive than the sin of an unregenerate person. Sin is beastly and ghastly and hideously loathsome regardless of whether or not you have been saved. Just because God has ceased to be your judge and he has become your father does not in any way minimize the contemptible, despicable and repulsive nature of sin. If I can put it crudely, just because you're a Christian does not mean that your sin now takes a more pleasant odor. It still stinks. When God adopts you into his family, your sin does not suddenly become more palatable to him. It is still distasteful and rank. The reason I want to camp on this point is to bring to your attention that the reason we sin, perhaps, may I suggest, is that we forget how truly foul and filthy sin is. I could be barking up the wrong tree, but it seems to me that we get so caught up in the beauty of grace. And we get so caught up in in the love of Christ that we forget the ugliness of sin. We love to think of how the blood of Jesus washes us and cleanses us. But what has he washed away? What stain... Has he cleaned? I mean, think about it. God convicts you about your sin, right? I'm I'm taking you back to now when you were at your point of conversion, perhaps, or thereabouts. God convicted you about your sin. He convicted you about the punishment that awaited you. you And you realized that you needed him. And you realized and you saw the the beauty of Christ. And you understood that there was no salvation to be had outside of Christ. And so you ran to Christ and you say, I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven. And Lord, please save me because I do not want to spend eternity away from you. And I I need your forgiveness. I need your power. I, I, I don't like my sin. I don't like the way I live. And in a second, bam, 
you saved it's it's momentary you confess you accept you receive christ and you are saved there is no waiting period there's no fill in a form please we'll get to you later we thank you for your call you're really important to us no you are saved in a second but here's what you need to realize the sin is gone in a moment not because of the weakness of sin but because of the power of the blood and i i i i want you to understand that the stain is gone because there is wonder working power in the blood not because sin is something that can easily be washed away just because it is washed away in a second doesn't mean it is easy to wash think about it if you escape a burning house does fire suddenly become less destructive to you if you were to survive cancer does cancer become more acceptable to you If you were to have a head-on collision with a 20-ton truck, a road train, smashed your car to smithereens, but you walked away, would you think, "Oh, wow, I could do that again"? Dear Christian, make no mistake. Just because God has looked upon you with kindness and compassion, does not mean that He considers your sin to be slight and superficial. Don't let the ease with which you receive salvation diminish the magnitude of your crime. Can I say that again? Don't let the ease with which you receive salvation diminish the magnitude of your crime. Why? Because grace becomes cheap. Grace becomes cheap when sin is seen as petty. and when grace becomes cheap the value of salvation depreciates how can we guard against the error there's only one way we must see sin as god sees it there is no other way to look at sin there is no other way to define sin except the way that god defines it david knew this when he wrote psalm 51 against you against you only have i sinned and done what is evil not in my sight not in the eyes of society in your sight david was guilty of adultery with bathsheba he was guilty of murdering uriah but who has he sinned against you only he is not grieving because he has fallen in his own eyes he is not grieving because somehow he has not achieved his own standards of perfection he is grieving because he has fallen short of the law of god 
Consider the words of Joseph to Potiphar's wife when she tries to seduce him. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then, I could, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? What does the prodigal son say? Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. God is the one who defines sin and he defines it as a crime committed against him. I spent 15 minutes, I think, um, this past week on a conservative Christian web, uh, on a progressive Christian website, and I had to run. Because the way sin is defined is against it's some offense against another human being. It diminishes their worth. Sin is something that takes away love. Sin is an abuse of power. No, no, no. Sin is lawlessness. Regardless of whether the offense is, is perpetrated against another person, God sees that offense as being perpetrated against Him. That is why we have a debt. You know, because if we have a wrong idea of sin, we're going to have a wrong idea of the debt. And therefore, when we pray, forgive us our debts, we could be praying about anything. If we truly want to believe and pray, forgive us our debts, we need to understand the value of the debt. How much do we owe? At the moment, I think I owe Josh about 170 bucks, I think, or 175 bucks or something like that. But if he came and told me, hey, Pete, where's the 300 bucks you owe me? I'm like, hey, hang on, hang on. Because both of us understand how much I owe him. We agree on how much I owe him. And so when we pray, forgive us our debts, I agree with God how much I owe Him. And if I don't know how much I owe Him, how will I agree with Him? How will my prayer make any sense in the sight of God if I have a wrong understanding of how much I owe Him? What's the yardstick for sin? And again... Jeff's been taking us through God's law because that's the yardstick. Thy word have I hid in my heart. Why? Because I like memorizing the Bible? No, that I might not sin against thee. Are you in the word? Because it's the word that brings conviction of sin. It's the word that speaks to us and challenges us to change and be transformed and not to conform ourselves to the pattern of thinking of this world, but to conform ourselves to the, to the mind of God. And if we are not in the word, we are not going to be challenged. We will not have a proper valuation of our sin. And if we are not in the word, then we are not going to be able to pray, forgive us our debts. So what's involved when praying with repentance? Basically, it involves agreement. I agree with God. I agree with Him that I continue to sin even though He has saved me. 
I agree with him that my sin is ugly and wicked and a stench in his nostrils. And that is why I come and confess. I'm saying, I'm sorry I did this. When I see sin as he sees sin and when I recognize how awful it is in his eyes and when I realize then how much I have hurt him, that is what drives me to confession. The Lord is teaching us the necessity of confession for Christian joy. To ask for forgiveness of one's debt is to confess that I owe them. I fess up. I admit. I affirm. Yes. Yes, I owe you. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, I did something wrong. Why do I need to do this? After all, hasn't God already forgiven me? Didn't we just sing that sin has been removed? Didn't we just sing that the blood of Jesus saves us from all sin? So why do I need to confess? Why this? Why, why is God harassing me? Why do I keep needing to come? What, what's with that? I mean, is God an Indian giver? He just says, uh, you know, I, I forgive you your sin, and now I still have to come and confess my sin? What's, what's with that? I take you back to what our thoughts were. When God is our judge, He grants us judicial forgiveness but we when he becomes our father we still need his parental forgiveness just because he has changed his relationship with us does not mean we stop confessing our sin if I don't come and confess God still is my father. That doesn't change. He, he doesn't change the relationship with us. But the quality is affected. The intimacy is compromised. And we confess to keep and preserve that intimacy, that beauty of the father-child relationship. We all know 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does it mean to be cleansed? And can I ask you to just turn, turn to John 13 for a minute. If you, if you can turn there to John 13. And we just want to see what is this cleansing about? Is this some ritual cleansing? What is this about? The Gospel of John chapter 13. And it's the incident where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. We've been singing about that. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty, and he washes our feet. What's, what's the deal there? Luke tells us uh, in his gospel that the disciples were actually arguing about who is the greatest amongst them. And then Jesus comes and starts washing their feet and everyone shuts up. So we, t- we start from verse 6, John 13 verse 6. So Jesus comes to Simon Peter and he said to him, and, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. So Simon Peter says to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. 
Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. What, what's going on here? What, what is that all about? Is he talking about having a shower? Well, you would know that back in, the, in, in Jesus' time, people walked. They traveled by foot. And their feet got dirty. And so when they entered their own house or someone else's house, they had to wash their feet. Because you didn't want to bring all the muck and the grime into the house. Especially, you didn't want to bring it next to the table. Because usually, you didn't sit at a table, you reclined at a table. And so you didn't want dirty feet next to the food. And this is what they were doing here. They were, they were having a meal. And they were reclining at the table. And they were absorbed in this self-centered discussion about who is the greatest. And Jesus then starts to wash their feet. And Peter obviously is convicted of his sin. He says, no, 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 okay, no, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus is saying, hey, if I don't wash your feet, we do not have a relationship. And so he says, oh, no, give me a shower. Don't wash my feet, only go wash my whole head and my hands and everything. And, you know, I'm so glad that um, I was named after the disciple who was capable of saying some very dumb things. Just like I am. Give me, a, give me a bath, Lord. But Jesus corrects him and then he provides this real deep spiritual insight. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Peter, if you've been saved, you don't need a bath again and again and again. You just need to wash your feet. Because you are completely clean. You don't need a bath. But you do need cleansing. So Jesus is saying salvation is a once and for all deal. It's the bath. You bathe once and that's it. But that doesn't mean you don't need regular washing. You do. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. But he is clean. So when you repent and confess of your sin, you receive God's forgiveness, His judicial forgiveness, that's like the shower. But you still need His parental forgiveness, you still need to wash your feet. We still need to confess our sin, because if we don't, then the relationship is disturbed. I sin, God knows that I've sinned, but I don't go to Him. What's with that? Do I think He doesn't know? But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you sin often? Do you sin often? Then come to Him often. Do you feel as if He is frustrated with you because you're doing it again and again and again and again? I mean, if I had to, if someone was making a mistake like that in my work, I'll tell them, hey, hang, you know, better shape up, man. So do I feel like I don't want to come to God because my sin is so repeated and so constant and so, you know, regular? Hear the words of Nehemiah. But thou art a God ready to pardon. Thou art a God ready to pardon.
Nehemiah 9.17 Be encouraged by the words of Micah. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. Micah 7.18 Can you imagine that God delights in mercy? His forgiveness does not have a use-by date. It never expires. Not only do His mercies never come to an end, they are new every morning. You know, when I, when I, when I, when I was thinking about that, I'm like, I cannot out-sin God's mercy. No matter how novel my sin, no matter how new ways I think up of sinning, His mercies are newer still. Are you depressed about your sin? Does it weigh you down? Does it weigh you down? Come, confess. Because He delights in mercy. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. Instead of just being a professing Christian, can I encourage you to be a confessing Christian? I don't mean you have to come and confess to me or to anyone else, but take it to the Lord. Get right with Him immediately. Fess up. Because there is pardon for every confession that you make. There is mercy beyond what you are able to confess. Keep the intimacy of your relationship with the Lord by making confession a habit. That is where joy lies. Not in hiding your sin. You can't hide anything from Him. Confess it. You know something else? Confession is good for your well-being. Psalm, 33, uh, Psalm 32 verse 3 says, When I kept silent about my sin, do you know what happened? When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. That's what guilt can do. Do you need forgiveness for something? Have you not confessed something that you ought to have? Have you not sort of gone to your father and said, I'm sorry, I know I did this, I messed up, I'm sorry. Don't keep silent about your sin. Confess it. So having understood the reality of sin in the Christian life and having understood the necessity of confession, we now come to the third and last lesson that Jesus is teaching, the urgency of forgiveness for Christian fellowship. It's not enough that we agree with God that we are constantly in His debt. We are here taught to agree with God that He will only extend His forgiveness 
insofar as we extend it to others. Forgive us our debts as in the same way as we have also forgiven others. That word as means we set the standard. Believe it or not. We set the standard for God's forgiveness towards us. Again, I'm, talk- I'm not talking about judicial forgiveness. He's already forgiven us. He's no longer our judge. But when it comes to his parental forgiveness, we set the standard. Ray Pritchard states it in very simple terms. I'd like to quote him. This is what he says. I quote, We establish the pattern and that God follows that pattern in the way he deals with us. It's as if we are praying, Oh God, that man hurt me. I am so angry. I can't wait to get even. Deal with me as I have dealt with him. We set the standard and God follows our lead. To refuse to forgive someone else and then to ask God for forgiveness is a kind of spiritual schizophrenia. You are asking God to give you what you are unwilling to give someone else. Unquote. That word... Forgive in our text has the idea of to abandon or to leave behind, to be done away with in order to move on to the next thing. And so when we are talking about forgiveness with this word, we are releasing them from their moral debt to us so that we do not recall it back again. We don't only forgive, we forget. D.L. Moody puts it rather interestingly when he says, those who say they will forgive but can't forget, simply bury the hatchet, but leave the handle out for immediate use. Yes, I've buried the hatchet. It's all good between us, but hey, look at the handle. Bang. What is the Lord's attitude to forgiveness? How does He forgive Psalm 130, verse 3. But if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. Complete forgiveness is an attribute of our God. He keeps no records. No one forgives like Him. So therefore, if we are created in His image, we should also forgive like He does. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse. Did you read that? He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do we remove the transgressions of others against us to that degree? God is known for His attribute of forgiveness. His holiness has His mercy in there. All of us are known for something or the other, right? 
Michelle makes some beautiful um, songs and she sings fantastically. She's known for her voice. Melissa is known for the bouquets that she creates and the cakes that she makes. And our brother Phil and Robert, who's not here, they're known for just serving. Whenever a hand is needed, they're there. Are we known for our forgiveness? Can you imagine? I mean, if, can, can someone say, look at, look, at, look at that guy. If you want forgiveness, go there. We could say it like this. Your love for your fellow believers reflects your understanding of God's love for you. And that's why I use the phrase urgency of forgiveness. We must be in a rush to forgive. We must be falling over ourselves to forgive. Regardless of how serious the offense, I must forgive. Because when it comes to the offenses of others against me, they pale in comparison to my offense against God. The logic is simple. We love. Why? Because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 4, 19 and 20. There can be no room for self-righteousness. There can be no room for seeing ourselves as morally superior. There can be no room for looking at others and looking down our nose and saying, Oh, I'm not so sure about that. Because, because sin, when we understand sin, we understand how heinous it is. And we understand how it levels us because we are all sinners. And when we look around at our family in Christ, we recognize that we are all sinners saved by grace. We are not just sons and daughters adopted into God's family. We are co-heirs with Christ. How dare I look down my nose at someone who is a co-heir with Christ? So we've been seeing that praying with repentance requires of understanding of the reality of sin, the necessity of confession and the urgency of forgiving others. So let's see if we can make this uh, a little more perhaps practical. What does it mean to pray with repentance? We need to agree with God on the reality of our sin. And not only that, we need to agree that it is offensive. This is not just about being sorry. It's about being sorry for the right things. It's not because we are sorry that we got found out, but we are sorry that we have hurt our Redeemer. What does praying with repentance look like? It looks like genuine contrition. Can I encourage you to go back to your Old Testament and just read 
the, the books, the, the, the prophets. Read Ezra. Read Daniel. Read all these guys who have come back from captivity and they confess. They go back to Abraham. And they go back to God's work in Abraham's life and say, you brought him out and you saved him and you created a great nation out of him and you, they, they, and you took them to, to Egypt and, and you brought them out of Egypt with your great hand and there was miracles and you sent plagues upon them and they came out and you brought them into a land filled with milk and honey, but they did not follow you. Grace was shown, but it was not followed up with obedience. Read, read the prophets to, to read what confession looks like. I read Daniel 9, I think it was. And he says, The righteousness is yours, O Lord, but shame is ours. Strong language. But fitting language. Broken hearted over sin. It looks like immediate confession. And why do we do it? We do it so that our relationship with our Father is not disrupted. So that the intimacy of our relationship is preserved. And finally, it looks like an eagerness to extend that same grace to others. Be eager to forgive. Be desperate to forgive. Lastly, how should this attitude of repentance inform the content of my prayer? Again, agree with God just how grievous your sin is in His sight. When we say Amen, what is that? I like James when he he doesn't say Amen, he says agree. That's That's what we're doing, right? I agree. Amen. Agree with God. About how holy He is, how just He is, and how sinful your sin is. And how much it hurts Him. But also agree with God that He is a God of great pardon, who delights in showing mercy. And then, believe in that. Do you believe that or not? Do you believe that He pardons? Then come. Seek intimacy with Him through confession and forgive others the way He forgives. To forgive greatly, we must recognize that we have been forgiven greatly. And if we are to recognize that we are forgiven greatly, then we must recognize that we have sinned greatly. Our Lord says as much about the woman who washed His feet with expensive perfume and Wiped his feet with her hair. You remember that? What does he say? For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. When you pray this, this week, can I encourage you to practice praying with repentance? Will you name your sins and confess them to the Lord What's more, will you extend that godlike forgiveness to those who need it? Shall we pray? Our great God and 
Savior, our Father and Redeemer. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is true, which shows you, which shows us who you are and who we are and our standing before you and your love for us and your grace and compassion towards us and the pardon that you extend to us. Father God, may we delight in showing mercy as you do. Father God, may we agree with you on our sin and just how horrible it is. Lord, may your grace not give us license to sin, but may it restrict us. Lord, when we see the love that you have shown to us, may that restrict our desire to sin. May your love motivate us to greater righteousness and greater holiness and greater Christ-likeness. And may that love that you have for us, Lord, may that flow out into the lives of others through us so that we truly can be united as a body whose head is Christ. And it is in his name we ask all this. Amen.